Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's welcome Dr. Kendall as he comes. If you had the choice, and you do, whether you could have more of God or more from God, which would you choose? Brief word of prayer. Heavenly Father, I ask now for the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus by your spirit to fall upon this place, that every mind will be touched for their cleansing, being filled, and that there will be no misinterpretation that what I say will be received as you intend. Cleanse my tongue that I will be your transparent instrument to say everything you want said, nothing you don't want said. Help me to be very simple, very clear, I ask that this will be a life-changing word, and a word that brings great honor and glory to your name. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Today we're going to look at the prayer of the Apostle Paul, and he prays that the Ephesians might experience all the fullness of God. Now, when he speaks to them as he does, like he says, I pray that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith, uh, you might get the impression that these people have never been converted. Oftentimes you have language written to Christians implying they must not be saved. Uh, the truth is, what we're going to see today is that you can never have too much of God, and that we all need more grace and more of God. Uh, you know, Paul said to the Philippians, his desire was that I might know Christ. You might say, well, Paul, I thought you knew the Lord. Oh, he would say, I know him, but not the way I want to know him. There's a verse in 2 Corinthians 1 
where Paul referred to a major trial in his life. And he said, it happened that I might rely on God. I thought, well, Paul, I thought you were already trusting God. But he would say, well, not the way I should. Well, what's going on in this passage? Well, the answer is, there's always more for us than what we are now experiencing. Now, some want to say, and I've got friends who would say this, look, you get all of it at conversion. Everything comes at conversion. There's nothing more. Uh, I have a friend. He says, when you're saved, you get everything, and the next step, heaven. <laughs> and he believes that. And uh, here would be a verse that he would quote. And it's 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 7, where Paul says, You do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there's something about that kind of teaching that people want to hear. They're not threatened if they're told, You've got everything now. There's no more. Don't look beyond. There are those who, who like that. But it's interesting to me that's not Paul's theology. And so what he says to the Ephesians, I pray that out of his glorious riches, that you with power through the Spirit, may, that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. As I said, I thought he already did. But he says, no, I want that you would be established, rooted, grounded in love, that with all the saints you might grasp how wide and long and high and deep, and that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Well, now you may say, well, wait a minute, R.T., what about that verse? 1 Corinthians 1, 7, doesn't your friend have a point? You do not lack any spiritual gift. I would only point out that in the same letter to the Corinthians later on, he says he wanted them to desire earnestly the greater gifts. Well, it shows that even though they have every gift, he wants them to desire earnestly the greater gifts. Well, what does he mean then, that you've got everything? He's saying that we have potentially everything, but there is more. And so it's a reminder that none of us has all of God that there is. I'll tell you who had all of God that there is. You know who it was? John 3, 34, Jesus had the Holy Spirit without measure. He had this, there was no limit with Jesus. He had the Spirit of God without limit. You see, you and I have the Holy Spirit, but it's in measure. There is a limit. Jesus had the Spirit of God without limit, without measure. Uh, A.W. Tozer used to say, you can have all of God that you want. Think about that. Would you say that you have all of God that you want? Right now, ask yourself, do I have all of God that I want? Well, that's the issue today. The passage that I'm looking at 
shows the way forward that you might experience more of God. Now, I asked you a question at the beginning. If you had the choice, and you do, which would you choose? To have more of God or more from God? And if you really could have either, which would you rather have? Do you know the difference? Well, let me put it this way. Uh, some time ago, Louise and I had uh, an hour, maybe it was a little more than that, with the Archbishop of Canterbury. And uh, I said to him, uh, I suspect that everybody that comes to you, they want something from you. And he said, you know, I think that's true. A hundred out of a hundred. They want something from me. And I assured him that we didn't. And that uh, I was just going to pray for him. I didn't want a thing from him. And I've kept my word. But there are those people that you know. You want something from them. Why would you want to see a person in great authority, whether it's a president, prime minister, Her Majesty the Queen, uh, what would be your motive? Most people go, they want something from them. And you go to a person who's well-connected. Uh, you're not wanting to know more of him, or you're not interested. What can he do for you? And I'd have to be honest that there are those who would teach and encourage you to go to God because of what you can get from him. And people like that aren't interested in getting to know what God is really like. To know Jesus, just what he is like. And to know more of God, just to have more of him. This is what I'm saying. And the idea of getting more from God, you see, is so uh, uh, much a part of people. I remember, well, I'll, I'll tell you, I've just finished a manuscript. Uh, my book will come out, the one I finished yesterday, if you want to know, finished yesterday. I'll be sending it to the publisher in a few days. Uh, comes out next year. But when I discussed the manuscript with the publisher, here's what they said. They wrote back and said, we're looking forward to your manuscript on getting more from God. I fired back. I said, no, you've missed the whole point. Because there are those who, that's what might sell the book more. How to get more from God. Oh, I'm interested. You help me with my finances. You'll do this. You'll do this. The idea of just getting to know God as he is. And that was what Paul wanted, that I might know him. And that's what he wants for the Ephesians, that you might have the fullness of God. Well, now, what we have here is an extraordinary prayer. I don't know if you've noticed it, but this is a prayer Paul prays. And uh, the thing is, it shows how we should pray. And yet I need to say also that there's something that people might overlook. That's the first thing I want you to see about this pasture, this passage is what I would call the posture of praying. P 
posture. When I saw this, I was gripped by it. Charles Spurgeon used to say, when a passage gets a hold of you, a text gets a hold of you, chances are you've got a hold of it. And I saw this. So Paul says, for this reason I kneel before the Father. Had you noticed that? I kneel before the Father. Now what's the point of kneeling? Well, when you kneel, you're showing not only respect, but you're wanting to get their attention. And this convicts me. And it took me right back to my own background. I was brought up in a different denomination back in Ashland, Kentucky. Would you believe that in my old church in Ashland, when they prayed, they knelt. And I don't mean they just knelt forward like Anglicans do, and I'm not meaning to be critical, but, you know, they just kneel forward. No, in my old church back in Kentucky, they'd turn around and kneel where they were just sitting. That's the way they did it. It was just the way it was done. And in my own family, my parents, we would pray before we went to bed around the dining room table, and we would kneel at the chairs, kneel. It was unthinkable to do anything else. Now, look, if you're looking for a biblical basis for posture, you can find a, a basis for standing. By the way, that's what the Pharisees did, so maybe that's not the best posture. <laughs> but if it makes you feel better because you don't kneel and you sit, David sat before the Lord, so you're okay. It's fine, so I'm not going to push it too hard. But I'm letting you know that this, this grips me. And some years ago, when I was at Westminster Chapel, an old friend, hadn't seen him in 30 years, uh, came to see me. We talked for an hour. It was a lovely time. And then I said, well, let's pray. And as soon as I said that, he got on his knees. And I felt so awkward. It made me think, I, so I did too. I got on my knees, and I thought, I think this is the first time I have knelt in my own vestry in all the years. I just didn't bother to kneel when you had people, you say, let's pray, you just bow. You, you, you. But he got on his knees, and it, and it troubled me. How would it make you feel if I prayed for you and you knew that I knelt when I prayed for you. I think that's the way the Ephesians must have felt, to think that Paul knelt. You kneel when it's more important. I'll tell you another story. When we went through our darkest experience at Westminster Chapel some years ago, I went to see my supervisor at Oxford. I hadn't uh, normally gone to him for pastoral help at all. It was always academic but I was now not at Oxford, but I went back and told him what I was going through, and he did something I'd never seen him do before. He got on his knees and prayed for me. It just goes to show. Uh, and I was thinking, we were reading yesterday from uh, a book by Pastor McConnell uh, in Northern Ireland, and he's got a point in there about kneeling. He says, when you kneel, it affects your concentration. And then someone else said to me after the first service, did you know that James, who wrote 
this epistle toward the end of the Bible. You have Hebrews, James, 1 Peter. James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, uh, was, called, was called, known as camel knees because a camel, you know, falls to its knees. And that James prayed so much that his knees were like camel knees. It just goes to show that in ancient times, they knelt. Now listen to me. I'm not saying you should kneel. I'm only telling you Paul did. And that's the way they used to do it. But David sat. So don't worry. I'm not going to say it much more. But here is the big thing. When you go to God, whatever your posture, and it's not a bad idea if you do kneel. Well, I'll, I'll, I'll share something real personal. I'm just, I will. I'll risk this. Think what you will. About two years ago, I began to think maybe I should kneel when I pray. Uh, I did. And I said, Lord, is this from you? Or is it I'm just feeling kind of guilty that I don't do it as I did as a boy? So I said, if this is from you, let the scriptures today say something that will help me to know. And I have a Bible reading plan that you've heard me refer to, Robert Murray Exchange Plan. I used it for 40 years. And my reading, the first verse said, David, I bow before the Lord. So David not only sat, he knelt, and it gave me pause. And for two years, in my own quiet time, I take time. The lion's share of my time in prayer has been on my knees. I had no idea I was going to share that. I hope it was okay that I did. I'm not suggesting that KT starts doing this. I'm not telling you to. But this just gripped me. Now, even if you sit, and I spend a lot of time praying sitting too, it's the posture of your heart. Take the leper. You know, in the audience of several thousand, on the Sermon on the Mount, the multitudes, three, four, five thousand, there was a leper in the crowd, but he was off at a distance because a, a leper knew his place. But as he heard Jesus speak, he said to himself, I could go to that man. And so he waited for the crowds to leave. And you come to the end of Matthew 7, and the Sermon, out is, the Sermon on the Mount is finished. It's Matthew 5, 6, 7. You've got the Sermon on the Mount. In chapter 8, and in the original, there's no chapters and verses. So if you take away chapters and verses, as soon as the Sermon Mount is over, who would go to Jesus but this leper? He no doubt waited for everybody to leave. And now he goes. And how does he go? Well, first he falls on his knees. And then what interests me is what he says. He said, Lord, if you will, you can heal me. It's a way of saying, Lord, you don't have to. You certainly don't have to. But if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus said, I will. He was healed. Take the Lord's Prayer. Have you ever noticed that it's the pattern prayer? 
Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Now, with some, the pattern prayer would be, Our Father, I need this, I need this, I need this. But no, the Lord's Prayer, the first thing, it's a pattern. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. You worship. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. You do get to your needs, but look at the order. And so the point of praying is that we recognize we don't snap our fingers at God and say, look, here I am. Salute me. There are those who think they are so important because in life they are bankers, solicitors, members of parliament, maybe royal, and they think that if they pray, Jesus is going to be so impressed and he will stop what he's doing. Oh, look who's coming to me and praying. I'm so flattered. No, no, get over that. You're the same as anybody else. And God is sovereign. When we pray according to Hebrews 4, 16, do you know the first thing you ask for in Hebrews 4, 16? Very famous verse. Let us come boldly unto the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy. You don't ask for mercy unless you're in bad shape. You can just snap your finger, some do, or God, give me this. When you ask for mercy, you're aware that God can give it or withhold it and be just either way. And that is the way. So Paul now, he's praying for the Ephesians. And what he wants for them is to have more of God. And, uh, and he says, I want you to know that I get on my knees and pray that this will happen to you. Well, now, do you want more of God to the point that maybe, maybe you should get on your knees? And if you do, don't go blabbing it to the world. You don't need to do that. Maybe I shouldn't have told you that I'd do it. I'm a little nervous that I said it. I hope it was okay. I'm just saying to you that if you want more of God, for one thing, you're going to listen to this passage. And look how he prays. Uh, now, we, we saw the posture of praying. But then Paul gives us the purpose of his prayer. And you know how he puts it? Look, he says in verse 14, For this reason I kneel. The purpose. Why is he praying? What's the purpose? Well, first of all, he was worried a little bit about his sufferings for them because he was afraid that they felt guilty. Because verse 13 says, I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you. What does he refer to? Well, you can read it in the book of Acts when he was at Ephesus. Paul went through a lot for them. He suffered for them. And Paul now is saying, look, it's okay, don't be discouraged because this is your glory. Imagine that, your glory. What does he mean by that? Oh, he's saying, it's the best thing that could happen to you. So don't be discouraged because of my sufferings. It's for you. But let me say one other thing. Suffering that he was doing for them was also for him too. And if you are undergoing any kind of suffering, do you know what it probably means? It's not because God is angry with you. 
It's not because God is trying to get even. No. He's trying to get your attention. And God wants you to have more of him so much that he will bring you to the place that you do what it takes to get more of him. And God uses suffering. Suffering. Could it be that there's somebody here? As I speak, you are in a time of suffering. Maybe it's physical. Maybe it's financial. Maybe if you've lost your job. Maybe you're betrayed by a friend, but it, but it hurts. What if I were to tell you that's your glory? My glory? Oh, yeah, yeah. Mm. Listen to me. When Louise and I were in our greatest trial of our lifetime, it was at Westminster Chapel. I was minister there. You probably know this, 25 years. They were the best of times. They were the worst of times. And we went through a trial. It was so horrible. If you at the time had come up to me and said, R.T., this is your glory, I would like to think I would say, thank you for that. I don't know. And if you had told me then that one day you're going to treasure this and actually say it's the best thing that ever happened to you, I don't know that I would have welcomed that. I'll tell you now, I can tell you now, you can put me under a lie detector. It's the best thing that ever happened to me. Best thing that ever happened to me. And I want you to know that what you are going through, it's your glory. You may not see it by tomorrow afternoon. And I didn't see it the next day. Took two or three years. But oh, thank you, Lord, for what you did. This is why James, I just referred to James having camel knees, the same James. He wrote his general epistle. Do you know the first thing he says? He says, count it all joy. He says, consider it pure joy. And the Greek says, if you fall into a trial. Now, this is important. Somebody might look at James and say, well, now, wait a minute. I'm going to get joy if I have a trial. Let me see if I can go out and find a trial so I can get joy. Uh, don't. <laughs> the, the trial will come soon enough. So you don't have a right to go out looking for a trial to have more joy. But here's the deal. If you fall into it, in other words, you didn't ask for it. It just happened to you. <laughs> now, count it joy. In fact, the word James uses, count it, consider it, is the exact same word Paul uses that righteousness is imputed to us when we believe on Jesus. In other words, God credits us. He counts us. He considers us righteous because of our faith. That's, Paul uses that word. And what James is saying is, if you are in a trial, impute to the trial. Consider it joy. Don't wait for years to come and then say, now I can see it was good. No, he's wanting you to do it while you're in it. While you're in it, 
may not be easy. It may not be easy. But if you're in a trial, instead of complaining and murmuring, consider it pure joy. Because one day you will see that Paul got it right. He said, it's your glory. It's your glory. All right. The posture of praying. The purpose of praying. But now third, the possibility in praying an experience that eclipses all experiences in the world. So, what is it Paul's asking for? He's praying for the Ephesians that they will have more of God. And if you are in a trial, you need to see it as God's hint. He wants you to have more of Him. Not more from Him because that's using Him. That's manipulative. But more of Him. And how do you get more of anybody? How do you get to know their ways? You see, the, uh, Hosea, the prophet, says, my people are destroyed from lack of knowledge. Knowledge of two things, the Word and God's ways. God wants you to know His Word. You ought to have a Bible reading plan, take you through the Bible in a year. I hope you're doing that. But also to know God's ways. How do you get to know anybody's ways? One way, one way, you spend time with them. Children spell love, T-I-M-E. That's what children want, time. And what if God spells love, T-I-M-E? How much time have you got? And you see, if you're wanting more of God, you spend more time with Him. How much do you pray? How much time have you got for God? You just quickly just ask for this and that, this and that. I'll tell you something that you may not, that you may not know about the average church leader in Britain. Don't tell them I told you this. <laughs> but a poll was taken. And all the clergymen of Britain that were asked, and it was thousands, they answered anonymously. And so it's probably accurate. And one of the questions put to pastors, church leaders, clergymen, priests, bishops, how much actual, physical, literal time do you spend alone with God, not counting sermon preparation, just tie with him. Martin Luther spent two hours a day. John Wesley spent two hours a day. The average church leader in England, four minutes a day. And you wonder why the church is powerless. You see, if you have more of God, you're going to feel it. <laughs> you're going to feel it. And hopefully, others will see it in you. And so, that Christ may dwell in your hearts. You see, a different kind of possibility. Jesus is in you. 
Colossians 1.17, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so, Christ himself dwelling in their hearts. How does it happen? How does Jesus get into your heart? Does he leave the right hand of God and come down from heaven and get into your heart? Well, if that were the case, he could only get into one heart at a time. But it's by the Holy Spirit. And not because Jesus leaves the right hand of God. We're told in this same epistle of Colossians, in heavenly places with him, he takes us up to where he is by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 6. So the Holy Spirit in us enables us to be more and more like Jesus. We're going to, fib, we're going to forgive like he did. We're going to love like he did. In fact, Paul says, being rooted and established in love. Now let me say something about wanting more of God. You've got to want more of His Word. And you people have heard me say it more often than you care to know, that the, there's been a silent divorce in the church between the Word and the Spirit, and there's Word churches and there's Spirit churches. Well, Word churches emphasize the fruits of the Spirit, but not the gifts. Spirit churches emphasize the gifts of the Spirit, they believe in the fruit, but they're mostly into gifts. And especially, forgive me, speaking in tongues. And of course, word churches, they don't like that. That's the thing that puts them off of charismatics and Pentecostals. But here's, I've got a word for both. Spirit churches. If you want the gifts of the Spirit, Paul did say, covet earnestly the best gifts, and went on to say, I show you a more excellent way. It's 1 Corinthians 13, love. And love keeps no record of wrongs. So if you're wanting more of God, you're going to show love. There'll be no pointing of the finger. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Why do we keep records? We keep records so we can say, I've paid why do you keep a record of wrong? Oh, I, the husband says to the wife, I will remember that. <clears throat> she says, I won't forget that. And you wonder why there's a marriage breakdown. By the way, any marriage on the rocks in this place, your marriage can be healed by sundown today. Amen. What am I getting ready to say? You've said amen already. You don't know what I'm going to say. <laughs> You were giving me credit. You were imputing to me that I was going to say something good. That's good. That's a good illustration of that. Christian, remember that. They imputed to me that I was going to have a good word. Well, here's the word. Any marriage on the rocks in this place could be healed by sundown if both of you will stop pointing the finger. Now you can say amen. Amen. But now a word to word people. I don't know any word people are here today, because you're probably all Pentecostals, Charismatics. Bruce, you're a bit of a word man, aren't you? No? You're Pentecostal? Well, then you don't need to listen. Actually, you do. You need to hear what I just said. But, you know, if there were a word person listening, you've got to be willing to desire earnestly the greater gifts of the Spirit. 
But you know what word people come back with every time? Well, look, RT, you know, don't you, that it's tongues is at the bottom of the list. In 1 Corinthians 12, verses 8, 9, and 10, 8 to 10, he mentions wisdom, knowledge, faith, and miracles, prophecy. Tongues is at the bottom. And Paul said, desire earnestly the greater gifts. So I don't need to worry about tongues. This is their line. I say, wait a minute. If you're wanting the best, be willing to start at the bottom to show how much you want that. And the thing about speaking in tongues, it's the only gift of the Spirit that challenges your pride. And that's why people don't like it. My point, do you want more of God or not? And what if he said, you, spirit people, live in 1 Corinthians 13. You, word people, be willing to do that which challenges your pride. This would show how much you want of God. Well, uh, my time is about up. Uh, to summarize, you see, when you are filled with the Spirit, do you know the interesting thing, the effect it has on you? You become detached from the things of this world. In fact, in the earliest church, when they had the Holy Spirit at optimum level, some would think they went too far, but they became so detached from their possession, they were just selling their property and giving the money to the church. Some thinking they went too far. All I know is that's the way they felt. And when you are filled with the Spirit, you are detached from earthly things that you were so enamored with. You won't worry about your reputation either. Let them say what they want. Let God handle that. Well, inwardly what you feel and experience firsthand the immediate and direct witness of the Spirit, but outwardly. And now I'm going to preach to myself. This is not for you. This is for me. Because I fear, and I'm so ashamed, that when people look at me, hear me, they see me as an old man with a bit of wisdom, theologian, good teacher. I wish that wouldn't be the thing that comes to their mind. I would love it to be, but it isn't. I know it isn't. They just see Jesus. I want that. I'm telling you. So don't hear me preaching at you today. I need this. We all need more of God. And I think of my friend Arthur Blessed carrying the cross around the world. That's what he wanted, more of God. I can tell you, I know. And he said he was carrying the cross in Amman, Jordan. Put the cross down in front of a holiday in August afternoon. He was thirsty. And he said there were, the place was guarded. And I walked in. They didn't stop me. He said, I don't know what was going on. I was thirsty. Went downstairs to the bar. Asked for a Coke. I bought a Coke. He says, I always remember the Coke. The bartender put a cherry in it. And I drank the Coke. And then I reached for my wallet. And the bartender said, it's paid for. Oh, really? How come? You see that man at the end of the counter? Yeah, he paid for your drink. It was an Arab sheikh. Arthur said, well, I'll go down and thank you. 
sir, thank you for buying my drink. And the Arab sheikh looked at him and said, I want what you've got. Arthur said, what do you mean? He said, I want what you've got. Look at all these people. Nobody's smiling. Your face is shining, smiling. I want what you've got. Arthur said, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. I carry a cross around the world. That Arab sheikh was a top oil man. The reason for the place being guarded, the OPEC conference was going on, that Arab was one of the top men, took Arthur to the top floor, got everybody quiet, and let Arthur preach to them. It all went back. They saw something different in him. You see, I want that. I think you want that. This is getting more of God, not more from God. Uh, do you know this poem? Twas not the truth you taught to you so clear, but to me so dim. But when you came to me, you brought a sense of him. Yes, from your eyes, he beckoned me. From your heart, his love was shed. And I lost sight of you and saw Christ instead. That's what Paul wanted for these Ephesians. That's what he was praying for. Which would you want? More of God or more from Him? May we pray. Heavenly Father, I ask you to take this word. Apply this word by your Holy Spirit. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.